February 2018, the cast of Black Panther talk about the cultural impact of the film. And this clip I'm about to give you is Chadwick Boseman's side. All of it has been very personal, just watching the kids um, experience it. And for me, I would say, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're two... Um, two little kids, uh, Ian and Taylor, who um, recently passed uh, from cancer. And throughout our filming, I was communicating with them, um, knowing that they were both terminal. And and what they said to me is, and their parents said, they just, they're trying to hold on till this movie comes. Mm. And I, to a certain degree, you hear them say that, and you're like, like, wow, that's like, I gotta get up and I gotta get up and go to the gym. I gotta get up and go to work. Um, you know, I gotta learn these lines. I gotta work on this accent. Uh, you know, seeing how devoted all of my castmates are, and knowing that 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 will be something meaningful to them but it's to a certain degree it's, it's a humbling experience because you're like this can't mean that much to them you know but seeing how the world has taken this on seeing how the movement is how it's taken on a life of its own i realized that they anticipated something great and um i think back now to a kid and just you know uh waiting for Christmas to come, waiting for my birthday to come, mm. uh, waiting for a toy that was going to that I was going to get a chance to experience or a video game. I did live life waiting for those moments. Mm. And so it put me back in the mind of being a kid just just to experience those two little boys um anticipation of this movie. And when I found out that they Take your time with it. Yeah, it's it's it means a lot. And in the words of Public Enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week. The circumstances. It's been a. It's been a. It's, it's been a week. <laughs> it's been. It's been. A, it's been a bit of a draining week. Oh, I'm not gonna lie to you. Um, for obvious reasons, and we'll get to that when we get to that. Obviously, um, but yeah. It's just it's just been it's it's been draining but also fast which I'm kind of grateful for. Um I've kind of relaxed on doing uh the the more spend time doing things kind of tasks and instead thinking more. 
um, and that just leaves time, I guess, for me personally to go a little bit faster. Um, so that's kind of how it's gone for me, and I can't complain about that. Um, so it's it's, it's 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 a necessary thing that I have that I do sometimes, and uh, you know, I think I think it's always good for people to just like not not do not do the minimal, but just to you know just coast a little bit and to replace that with uh, just moments of thought and uh, that's what I've been doing and uh, it was kind of planned but also just in terms of uh, shit going down you know it's just uh, just it, it happens it happens that's how the how the world goes always every every week something else happens and uh, yeah so 2020 man what a year crazy year anyway um but yeah we have a stocked stacked and stocked <laughs> fully stocked uh episode for you guys uh, got all four topics one of each uh very solid uh episodes ahead and uh let's just jump right into it without further ado formalities before we begin email twitter ig facebook as well discord link all that all that all that is in the full show notes give them give those a peep and uh, yeah, let's get into it. Let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where Japan's longest serving PM Shinzo Abe resigns over health concerns, prosecutors charge 17 year old Kyle Rittenhouse uh, with two counts of first degree homicide. Elon Musk showcases new Neuralink prototype. Did you see that shit? Crazy. Well, that's, some, that's some Blade Runner shit. Um, George Floyd-style killing, quote, could happen in the UK, says only ever Black Chief Constable Michael Fuller. So just uh, adding adding on to the previous uh, topics I've uh, brought up, especially in the week where in the past couple of weeks, just adds on to it. Uh, and I have six in a week where I'm, I'm breaking my rule, but it is what it is. Uh, Ferg is kicked out of the ASAP mob, which just made me laugh yesterday, just seeing that, because I I literally can't name anybody on ASAP mob apart from Rocky and Ferg, so... <laughs> so, yeah, it is what it is. Have fun with that, guys, whoever's in the ASAP mob these days. And uh, lastly, Ivan Novellos. I told you I'd give you that update. Shout out to Lil Sims, best album, Grey Area, shout out to her, and also Dave and Fraser T. Smith, uh, obviously wrote the best contemporary song, Black, uh, and that is fully deserved for both of them, and also shout out to Labyrinth, who did, uh, I think, uh, the best soundtrack, I think it was for uh, that TV show, Euphoria, so yeah, man, big things, big things, big things, but we shall jump in to first topic of the... Uh, of the episode, I've stuck it to life, um, just because it's about someone's life, you know, just um, thought that would be the best place to put it, and not stick it into, you know, I, I don't like to tear things, but obviously life is a bit more than film and TV, uh, for obvious reasons, um, so yeah, I just decided to stick it here, and uh, obviously talking about Chadwick Boseman, um, obviously I've, I've, had a, I've had a few days to think about it, you know, think about what I'm going to say, or just, like, you know, just, just, just trying to sink it all in, because, like, this is, it's a bit mad that, you know, him and, you know, Kobe as well, um, in the same sense, just 
died on died on complete surprises. Um, you know, the fact that nobody knew he had stage three and then stage four colon cancer is just um, it, it, it. I can't fathom it. And that's kind of where I come come around to it. I just cannot fathom it. Um, just the the resolve, the resilience to do what he has been doing since uh, 2016, apparently, since when he got diagnosed. Like it's just you can't you can't think about that kind of strength. It's it's unimaginable. Um, but I do have a write up uh, to um, to just add on to everything. And it's a beautiful piece written by Miss Kelly L. Carter from Undefeated. Uh, it's called Chadwick Boseman knew his voice had power and used it to cha- challenge Hollywood. And uh, I'm just going to jump right in because it's a super, just really great piece and really well thought out. Chadwick Boseman was one of the good guys. I was living in Atlanta and freelancing for Ebony, Ebony Magazine when this guy, whom no one had quite heard of, was slated to star as baseball star uh, Jackie Robinson. The studio was pushing Harrison Ford. He was the big star, and quite frankly, was how the film was going to get butts in seats because people knew his work. But Bozeman was the new kid on the block, and he was the one I was interested in, as his character was very important to generations of black folks and a black readership. By the time we first talked, Bozeman had all but lost this, his South Carolina drool, or drawl. Uh, he did not. He didn't elongate his words the way that my family members who live south of the Mason-Dixon line do. That familiar thick accent that drips over words like alligator syrup. He didn't have that anymore. But the charm that never left. A charm and a talent, to be sure, is why I believe Bozeman was so capable of transforming himself into one of the most, uh, into some of the most important pop culture figures over the course of American history. He skillfully melted into Robinson, James Brown, and Thurgood Marshall, even though there was no way possible for him to physically evolve into Marshall's light skin with Bozeman's smooth chocolate colouring. Quote, If this was a cradle-to-grave story about Marshall, obviously we would have to deal with his complexion, Bozeman shared with me as we sat in the basement of a hotel in the district. Right now, we're dealing with one case. He's walking into this courtroom as a black man. He's not a black man passing as a white man. He didn't try to pass as a white man. He showed up as the black attorney, right? He showed up as the black man and got gagged for being black, right? They didn't say, unquote. Bozeman stopped to laugh, quote, We're going to gag you because you're like skin did did, unquote. Director, uh, director Reggie Hudlin, uh, who was also there, laughed too. We all did. We laughed because it's true. Black is black, and even if anyone had something to say about Bozeman's skin colour not measuring up, his acting was undeniable. He was Thurgood Marshall. He was James Brown. He was Jackie Robinson. And he was good. Bozeman had gotten better uh, inside of eight years at this media game. When we first met, he was shy and almost maybe being careful about the words he said to me. The reporter and subject relationship in Hollywood is a tricky one. Sometimes this world wants us to wants to know more than you're willing to share. Not everyone wants to weigh in on everything. But I know exactly when he started trusting me as a reporter. It was after he'd landed the role of Black Panther. We were talking, laughing about how Black how the Black Panther film was easily the most anticipated, but the script wasn't done. Bozeman knew how hungry everyone was to see a black superhero come alive on screen. 
He also knew that his voice was now strong and people were listening and paying attention. And he knew that even as this moment was victorious, Hollywood still needed to be called to task on the things that make make this industry problematic. Even as it was in the infant phases of creating a groundbreaking blockbuster with a mostly black cast. Hollywood was toasting Bozeman. He was part of Vanity Fair's prestigious 2014 Hollywood cover, which confirmed that the industry was paying attention to the Howard University grad who also graduated from the British American Drama Academy, but he didn't like being the only one. Quote, There was a period of time where it was Sidney Poitier is the guy, and very often people will come to me or some of the other guys that are doing well right now, and they say, they're going to pass the torch to you. And I don't think that's right, because it's possible for there to be a Chris Pine or a Chris Evans and Chris O'Donnell and a Chris Hemsworth and all the other Chrises, but it can only be one of us at a time. That is part of what's wrong, Bozeman told me. There is so much material for white actors that Hollywood has, has to manufacture stars. Sometimes before, they're even ready to be stars. And they will put up billboards before people even know who they are. You'll be like, who's that? Who's this person? Who's that person? But with us, it's like we have to kill each other before we get there, unquote. Everyone opining about Bozeman's contribution to the world will have to talk about what he was able to do with Black Panther. Bringing King T'Challa to life wasn't just a role, it was a transformation. That film will go down history as the film that perhaps changed the way Hollywood treats films with predominantly black cast globally. Never has dark-skinned blackness looked as beautiful as it did in Ryan Coogler's masterpiece. We were filmed the way we should have always been filmed. The gorgeousness of our hues bouncing off the silver screen and a budget that rivals the types of budgets that black filmmakers have never been able to touch before that moment. It looked good. It was good. And it felt good. And Bozeman was the leader of the film. It's it's painful now uh, now to realise that while he was telling me how physically demanding the role was, I was able to spend some time with him and... uh, and the cast on the set in Atlanta, he was privately battling colon cancer. He busted his butt to get into fighting shape for Captain America Civil War, the film that first introduced his character, and the film that honestly served as an origin story of the, of the heir to the fictional African kingdom Wakanda. The role, by its nature, was physically demanding. I watched Bozeman do his own stunts in the Korean casino scene, where he did, his flying, did flying kicks that sent his enemies flying into mattresses that no one would ever see on camera. To do all of that... The chief focus for Bozeman was increased, increased athleticism. Quote, running, swimming, and actually fighting, you're limited at some point uh, when you get closer to production because it's an insurance risk. By actually doing martial arts and trying to make it as real as possible, sparring, uh, we did stunt training. You can't necessarily hit people, but there is some contact every now and again. Uh, unquote. He told me before he went into production of Black Panther. On set, I was warned that he was trying. He was staying in character. I was told by Jan- uh, Jana Bettencourt, who handles publicity for Disney Studio, that he likely will be taking, talking in the dialect we all heard him use as T'Challa. As soon as he saw me, we sat up on the top rungs of the studio on directors' chairs. He broke out into a smile and hugged me. I asked him the first question. And as he delivered the answer in a foreign accent, he stopped and laughed. Quote, hmm, I'm going back to my regular voice now. 
and unquote. He said before we both laughed and we launched into answering a question, uh, my question about how the optics of this film could potentially change Hollywood as we know it. The cast was making this film in Atlanta, about six miles from where Martin Luther King Jr. was buried in 1968, in a town that at the time was 54% black, even with the rapidly changing demographics of gentrification. I was there on the 26th day of shooting Black Panther, and it was in the middle of Black History Month 2017. We were only 30 days into Donald Trump's presidency. Michael Flynn had just resigned as National Security Advisor from the new administration. So much was happening on the set. So much was happening in the country. And the cast was living in a bubble as they were shooting this marvel. That day, Bozeman was rocking a charcoal grey brocade jacket and tailored black slacks. And by the time we sat down and talked, he'd work through another 10-hour day as T'Challa, king and protector of the fictional African nation of Wakanda. He was doing roundhouse kicks as one of, at one of his enemies that sent him sailing back and landing safely uh, on a stack of floor mats. As a focused and as focused as Bozeman was uh, with that was happening right in front of him, his mind trickled to other places as much as the, as much of the country and eventually the world marched in protest of Trump's newly minted presidency. Quote, I look at the Internet more for what's happening in the country than I do news about us, he told me. By the time we leave here, dot, 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 I want to see, like, what did he do today, unquote. Bozeman once told me that he knew the moment when uh, he knew the moment when he understood why the work he was doing, not just grabbing of marquees, uh, not just alongside Hollywood's top talent, not just surprising critics, but how easily he melted into a role of some of the world's most famous men, was cemented. He was on a sort of set of draft day, a 2014 sports drama about the Cleveland Browns and his general manager Kevin Costner, uh, who was. Uh, who wants to turn around his, his losing team with a hot draft pick. Quote, when you're doing a car shot, he told me, you're following the lead car. He said they stopped uh, in front of the projects. Quote, I get out of the car and somebody says, yo, that's that dude from the baseball movie outside, right? Everybody in the projects came outside and they were like, hey, 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 I got your movie on DVD in the house. The DVD hadn't come out yet. <laughs> they were uh, They were like, it didn't come out yet? Oh, no, no. We didn't, uh, we didn't mean it that way, but look, I saw it, unquote. He smiled at the memory. He didn't care that they were jumping up and down over a bootleg copy of his first film. You want people to appreciate what you've been doing. I still hate this part. I still cry along with everybody else, with everyone else who is feeling emotional at the loss of a great young actor who died at his home in Los Angeles on Friday after a private four-year battle with colon cancer, who truly was at the very beginning of a global career. But I'll take solace in knowing that uh, he most certainly did his part to help move the needle and change Hollywood for the better. And that he knew that we all appreciate his work. Because we did, and we still do. I now host a digital show for the Undefeated called Another Act, and behind me is the poster of Black Panther. I got the poster the day the film opened, and right after Bozeman and I sat down to talk about the historic, uh, how historic this moment was. Quote, I feel some strange sense of ownership, I told him. Excited in a way uh, that I'd never been about uh, about the world, getting ready to t- take, a f- take in a film that i already seen twice. Quote, Come on, you're right there with us. You can and you should, unquote, he told me, before giving me a hug. And then I was gifted that poster. The cast has signed it for me. Bozeman's signature is in the lower right-hand corner. I've gotten the movie posters before, but this one was meaningful. 
And I kept it and had it framed and had have it displayed as a backdrop to every interview I do for our show. Most everyone, uh, most everyone comments. Uh, almost everyone, it doesn't matter that. Most everyone comments on it. Uh, actors say how they either wanted to be in the movie, admire the movie, or how this movie changed everything, even possibly for their own careers. And then we talk and build the same way as with with him over the years. Rest in peace, King Chadwick, and thank you. So, shout to Miss Carl for that, and um, I think the main point I come away from this um, particular piece, and just overall, um, and I'll stick it with just, you know, Black Panther talk for, for the moment, for the meantime. Um, I remember when I saw it, um, <clears throat> it was... It was, I think, not on release day. I'm not really that kind of person to see it on the day of release because I just like, you know, to have a <laughs> have an opportunity to get a decent seat and not to sit at the front like a like an idiot. Um, I just wanted to wait for a good seat, you know. So I waited, the, you know, probably about a week, right? That's usually the time I wait. I was in Southampton still, still in university. I was about to finish. I was about to, well, February. I was midway through um, f- doing my FMP and writing it. Um, just obviously got back to, you know, start on it and, you know, had about six weeks to do it. And, uh, I went to watch the film and next to me were three, uh, black girls that were, uh, I'd say, I'd say about three, four years younger than me, like you know, solidly in their teens, right? Solid teenagers, right? In that age, in that age gap. Um, and, well, were there three? I think four or five actually. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. Some black girls were sitting like um, a couple of rows, you know, just a couple of seats next to me, and they were hype. They were so hype about it, like they they were just <laughs> they were just gassing all throughout the film, and the excitement I've never seen such excitement um, from pe- from someone in a cinema watching a film. I don't, I honestly haven't seen such excitement from start to finish about it. Just seeing every action bit and just going, ah, oh, wow, you know, just, and just, just being so jovial about it, you know. And you know, I'm not one of those, I'm, I'm not one of those people that, you know, I was on my own, you know, what I mean, so I'm not really, you know, going go on to to myself, you know, <laughs> you know, what I mean, like if, if if I had some people with me, then yeah, sure, I would obviously be much more vocal, but yeah, you know, I just wanted to sit and watch it and just just take in the moment. And I left that film, um, and I took a bike, like you know, one of them, you know, bikes you can cop throughout the sea. I don't know if they still exist, the yo bikes in Southampton still, but um, they, they, you know, you pay a pound and you just you get to ride everywhere ever. And um, I had to, I had had the length of the film to actually uh, <laughs> to get back on riding it because I put it in a place where I wasn't authorized to put it, and I had two hours before I get a fine. Um, so <laughs> I just put it there and I was like, fuck it, risk it and just get to the film and just get to the bike as soon as possible because it was a very tight uh, window and I didn't want to get fired. So I watched the film and uh, I left that film and I rode back with such energy. I have never left a film with such energy before. And I, and I don't mean an energy of like, whoa, that was a good film because, you know, I've had, I've, everyone's had that kind of energy. I mean energy where I, well, one, had to talk about the film immediately, 
to it gave me such a motor such a motor to finish like to basically just finish university um i found it kind of daunting at the, at the time to do my feature you know regardless of how much i planned for it and how much i was ready for it um because it was an idea that i've had i had for three years at that point um so i was ready but there was still some doubt there and that film just removed it for me because I was just so energized and I was given such a motor off that film. I've like I've, I've never just I've never gotten that. I can't describe the energy I got from that. I was I was riding home with such fucking ferocity, man. I was I was like Tour de France level. I was just pedaling. I couldn't wait to get home and just talk about it with my flatmates how fucking lit it was and just and then just go in my room and just fucking write, I was given so much energy off that film, you know, and I'm always going to remember that, like, I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of time, and, you know, obviously, 20 saying, you know, well, 21, 22, right, so, you know, I, I, well, I didn't have that kid-like, um, inspiration, like, I've seen, um, kids with their, Black Panther uh, dolls um, or action figures or whatever you want to call them, um, you know, just <laughs> making homemade visual vigils for him. Uh, obviously, I I don't have that. I I don't have that level of childlike memory towards it. Um, but I do I do have something that I can just that I can at least say. You know, I I remember that moment vividly. I remember watching it. I remember the the girls next to me was with such excitement. I bet they haven't had that been excited for a film, um, you know. And again, just bringing it home, I guess. Um, the the like I said, I I can't I can't fathom the strength it takes to have such a debilitating illness and managed to do such active films like go watch get on up man just 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 go watch that and just how in the zone he is for that you know it's it's just outstanding and then you got civil war and then you got infinity war and then you got black panther themselves and then 21 bridges as well like these aren't these aren't like you, you, you know, we we take the piss out of, you know, superhero movies and the amount of them and, you know, and how, you know, just, you know, everyone's like a Alan Moore type and just taking the piss out of, you know, people wearing spandex. But, you know, it takes work. It takes work. It takes energy. It takes, you know, it, it, it does take work. And you can't, you can't knock that. You can't take that. You can't, you can't take that physical toll away from people. You know, albeit is, albeit um, the whole thing happening um, in a you know two, three week, four week shoot or whatever, however long it is, you know, you still got to train for that. You know, you still got to, you got to mold yourself basically. And the fact that he did that um, while keeping all of this under wraps, and obviously the um, the clip I gave you at the start, and I I meant to say that um, I might be you know just giving clips at the start of shows, I'm, I'm kind of 
I wanted to, I've always wanted to do that, and I thought this would be a good time to, to try that. So if you guys rated that kind of thing and you want that um, at the start of shows, just have a clip um, of anything um, to do with the episode that's going to come ahead. Um, let me know. Um, I'd appreciate that feedback, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, just hearing, when I, I saw that the, I saw that the next day, and uh, I was just shattered, because... I remember this. I remember watching it. Um, I remember watching that uh, that particular interview fully. Um, when it initially dropped, I was just I was just on the Black Panther hype train. I just saw the whole gang on Sway in the Morning, just Ryan Coogler, Denai, Lupita, Michael B, and obviously Chadwick there as well. And you know, I was just what it was. Just, it was just cool watching them talk about the cultural impact it had, and you know, just him talking him talking about the the kids and uh you know with a very similar you know battle to him at that point we didn't know that until now just watching that back with hindsight is just heartbreaking and i think um something to take away um as an overall point to his character and i i personally like to say i'm not really one for um uh, having favorite actors for some reason i feel like it's on a case-by-case basis you know like i i like some people in this i like some i don't like him in that you know what i mean i don't really have a favorite actor like i have favorite musicians but i do have actors i respect and um he was definitely one of those i he just seemed like such a cool dude to talk to you know just um attentive and uh the humbleness comes through every single time. Like if he, when he got that um, that MTV Movie Award, he gave that to uh, I think James Shaw, I think his name was uh, the Waffle House hero. You know, he gave that to him. Uh, talking about the culture impact of Black Panther, you know, talking about the use, like it's just every interview, man. It's just consistently humble, and uh, it's a damn shame. It's a, it's a real damn shame. Like, it, he. Like, we could have had, like, a good... And, and it's the fact that, you know, just... I keep I keep getting points. I, I kind of, I'm trying to finish this, but I keep getting points. Like, the, the, the popular part of his career was, like, in his 30s. Like, it's not like he was in... His, it's not like he was in his 20s, you know what I mean? He was, you know, on the grind for, you know, his, the prime of his life, so to speak. And it was only until his 30s that he actually, you know, got the breaks... And got that 42 uh, call up, which is a great film. It's severely underrated, to be honest. I think people, a lot of people shit on it as a film, but I really like it, especially the performances. Him, Andre Holland, great, great performances. Um, but yeah, like, he, he he grinded. He literally grinded it. And, you know, we don't, I don't think we hail that enough. Um, and it's just a shame that we won't get a real solid, like, 50 60 year career like we um like we can with other people like a Cicely Tyson or a, you know or you know it's the fact that Cindy Sydney Poitier is still alive um and obviously Denzel like you know being the lead veteran on that sense you know it could have been that he could have he, he made solid attempts to pay it forward and um yeah and uh, I guess I guess death will be that push that a lot of us get. You know, just watching a hero, a legitimate, you know, hero die, um, will spur on a lot of people. And uh, 
hopefully that's for the positive and hopefully we'll get those fruits sooner rather than later but, um, I'll leave it there R.I.P. Chadwick Bozeman. <sighs> yeah, it's a damn shit. So we move on to our second topic of this episode, and uh, we're going to talk about film and TV. And uh, I found this great article on the, the about uh, uh, the Daily Show. And um, the, well, it's, it's called The Unnatural Evolution of Trevor Noah and The Daily Show. Um, it's by Michael Ordonia uh, of uh, the LA Times. And I just, uh, I found it a fascinating read because um, I don't watch The Daily Show uh, regularly these days anymore uh, for whatever reason. Uh, I just, I just don't. But I keep up with, I keep up with them on social media and I, you know, occasionally see clips, you know, of, of, of of uh, certain pieces or whatever, and uh, I, I enjoy the election throwbacks that they've been posting. Uh, that was a real, <laughs> that was a real fun time uh, for for sure. Um, but obviously, recently uh, with the social distancing stuff, and obviously Trevor doing his show in his home with the hoodies, um, it's gotten a, it's gotten it's gotten different. It's gotten a bit more. I don't want to say serious because obviously it's the Lady Show and it's supposed to be comedy, but um, it's just. It's not. It's not. It's not trying to um, shy away from anything anymore. And obviously, that's a direct, surely a potentially a direct um, reason, uh, a direct decision from Trevor Noah and people, uh, you know, the, the right with him or whatever. Um, and uh, I just, I just found it interesting. So I, I thought it was a cool read to get into. So. Uh, so let's just jump right in. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah has gone from being uh, jokes about the news to more and more the news with some jokes. If comedy is tragedy plus time, perhaps this is a natural evolution when we're too close to the second part of that equation to produce a lot of laughs. But from the location of what's being called the state Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah, uh, which is his New York apartment, the host says, quote, if anything, it's an unnatural evolution. Sometimes you are focused... Uh, forced to become more of yourself because of something that happens to you or the world around you. I've always, I think I've always had uh, radical ideas of what The Daily Show could become, but I've never taken for granted you're working with something you've inherited and you, you're trying to design something while, whilst also doing it. It's like redesign, redesigning an airplane while you're flying it, you know? It's not exactly the safest thing to do, unquote. The Daily Show was among the earliest adapters to, uh, to a COVID-19 world. It's not just that Noah and the show's stable of correspondents are broadcasting from their homes. The show is also also has a robust social media presence. It has expanded from its 30-minute slot on Comedy Central to 45 minutes, and Noah has increasingly folded in the low-key vibe of his Emmy-winning behind uh, between-the-scenes streaming shorts in which he speaks to the audience about important issues in a relaxed, non-performance way. Quote, I've had to be more real because the veneer of showbiz, to some extent, has been removed. There's a disparity between what you want to tell the TV audience as opposed to what you want to tell the studio audience and how they're responding, quote. He says, uh, unquote, and he says, and now that live feedback is out of the picture, audiences are responding. The show has increased its viewership by more than 50% and has logged more than 2.8 billion views on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube so far this year. 
the most of any late night show according to data tracking site Domo and data measurement platform Tubular. Uh, the show has racked up a handful of nominations since the host tenure began in 2015. This season alone it has six. Uh, yeah, it has six. Uh, quote, I think in many ways I'm meeting an appetite by satisfying my own, Noah says. I'm going to try and voice, try to voice my opinion and step out a little more than usual. I owe some of that thinking to a friend and mentor by the name of David Chappelle. David Chappelle. Dave Chappelle. Idiot. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was me. I said David for some reason. David Chappelle. Uh, he said, anyone could be funny. Not everyone is, not everyone is interesting. Don't discount your point of view, the world you lived in, uh, you've lived in, the country that shaped you, the journey that you've lived through, uh, lived through in how you see the world, unquote. Born during apartheid, when, when Noah's very existence as a mixed-race child was illegal, the Johannesburg South African native has witnessed the nation in upheaval before. He recognises it now. Quote, Living in this period in America, as much as I hate to say it, a lot of the things I'm seeing are similar to what we experienced in South Africa. Mass unemployment, a government that doesn't seem to have best interests of people at heart, people who are getting angry and anger, unquote. Among the earliest of the serious deep dives Noah felt embroidered, emboldened sorry, uh, to take uh, was a nine-minute video of him soberly addressing the realities of race in America in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and other similar events. Uh, and more than a 13-minute interview on the show with immunologist Dr. Anthony Fauci. The Daily Social Distancing... Christ, that's a tongue... The Daily Social Distancing Show... Why am I struggling with that? Daily Social Distancing Show. It's a distancing. Dis- so- social distancing. Uh, show with Trevor, Trevor Noah interviews Dr. Anthony Fauci in, Mar- uh, in March. Uh, quote, I realise that uh, the time on our show would be better spent with Dr. Fauci try- uh, than trying to satirise things that were happening in the news. Uh, that this is what people want to- wanted to know, Noah says. Uh, in all honesty, that's all I wanted to know. That day, uh, that's all I cared about. I, want- I just wanted to know if our packages are safe to touch and what's going on with the virus, how the virus was transmitted, etc. I came to realise the show during uh, this time has no rules. The show will be uh, what it needs to be on the day. We're trying to create as much as we can with what we have, and we're also trying to create a show that's as honest as it can be, unquote. Noah acknowledges that staying in New York, as he did through the uh, terrifying early days of of the pandemic, uh, quote, really shaped how I was making the show. We're in a similar position in more ways than we've ever been to many in our audience. We're not coming to, to you from a glitzy, glamorous world. I'm not in a studio. I'm in my apartment, unquote. One thing that hasn't changed uh, that is that the so <laughs> the daily social distancing show, I have to really, really tiptoe that one, uh, is still at its essence a comedy program. Quote, uh, I believe in the importance of jokes. I will never lose that. I will always tell people jokes are what made me. That's how I see the world. But maybe because the show has more time as well, I no longer have to choose between joke and what I want to say. Unquote. And that's kind of the crux of it, right? The, f- the fact that you don't ha- you have an extra 15 minutes. So you could literally just do a, sh- a normal show if you really wanted and then spend another 15 minutes doing an interview or, you know, just talking about what you want to talk about. That's a, that's a vibe. That's a vibe right there. I rate that. I rate that highly. Um, and uh, I have been watching, you know, the... Obviously, you mentioned the Fauci interview. I gave that a watch. And uh, I think they had the numbers for that one. Uh, just just, uh, just, just randomly. Uh, nearly 12 million views, apparently, according to that. 
and uh, 9 million views for the George Floyd one. Um, you know, I watched them both, and, uh, you know, they were seriously they were very sobering um, in many ways. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's drastic times, I guess, call for drastic measures. And uh, I feel like there are uh, some shows have, you know, um, obviously I talked about Patriot recently, um, and that show died due to potentially the fact that they won't have an audience in the in the near future. Um, it's different. It's, it's different for other people. Um, you know, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver can probably live because John Oliver's very animated anyway, and the stuff they talk about is highly important um, in terms of just the topics and how serious he can get while also being jokey. Um, it's you know it's very similar to Trevor uh, Day Show Trevor Noah, so it's very. They, they, I guess um, the fact that uh, Trevor Noah's show is now forty five minutes has kind of uh, melded a little bit with something like last week tonight, and then you have obviously the the late night talk shows like Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers. You know that that stuff can be different, and you know here we had that. Uh, I don't know if uh, Graham Norton's still doing his thing now, but I remember seeing one episode. I think my mum had it on. Just I was walking past, and you know he was just in a in a in a box basically, and just talking to people via Zoom or whatever platform they use. So you know it's it's different strokes for different folks. It it, it depends on what show you have, um, but the fact that. Uh, They've that Trevor Noah's uh, managed to evolve in this sense, albeit unnaturally in his words. Uh, it's kind of cool, and uh, you know, long may it continue because uh, you know, this the show hasn't really, I don't think, lost this uh, veneer or anything. Um, it doesn't hasn't lost this edge, but um, it's become a you know a key voice in TV, and uh, even more so, I think, uh, especially with how they're trying to take. You know, some of this shit, obviously it's jokes and, you know, it's, it's serious, but also you can make jokes about it. Uh, you know, we, we can we can dissect that all we like, but, you know, the fact that they talk about these things with such, um, with a level of importance is uh, is good. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, th- I, think, I think there's a good balance to be found there. And uh, I think probably Trevor and I has found that balance. Um, uh I think he's found that balance in spades. So, um, big up to him. A big up to the social distinct daily social distancing show. I don't know why I'm struggling with saying that. <laughs> it's, so, it's so weird, but hey, we all have our time to this. So, uh, yeah, man. Shout out to Trevor Nolan, my friend. Good, good stuff. So we move on to sport, and uh, if you guys didn't uh, gather in the past week, especially if you're an NBA fan, uh, there was recently a boycott of some sense. Uh, so the way it went down, and obviously this is a very, very condensed way of talking about it, because there was a fuck ton of shit that went on in that buzz in the in the in the days in between uh, this particular moment. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, basically boycotted their game uh, against Orlando, uh, basically at the last minute, uh, unbeknownst to practically everyone else, um, I think the Orlando Magic were actually uh, on the floor waiting for them to come through, um, and that was in response of the Jacob Blake shooting, uh, which obviously happened a couple a week or so ago, and uh, apparently he's paralysed from the waist down, 
um, now. And uh, yeah, so they basically did it in response to that, and uh, they just they just felt some type of way clearly. And uh, the NBA kind of followed suit, um, just in a in a, in a kind of hamstring moment. Like if you were going to continue games um, and just leave Milwaukee in the dust in that sense, or leave them in the dark. That would send an interesting message, you know what I mean? Obviously, the Jacob Blake shoot happened in the state of Wisconsin, where Milwaukee is, so uh, that's why they particularly did it. Um, but, yeah, it was it sent it sent the NBA and the WA, uh, WNBA off into a bit of a whirlwind. Um, WNBA is a bit different because they simply lead... They, they do this. They literally do this. They, have, they basically have nothing to lose um, because they don't have the capital that NBA players have um which is unfortunate and is what but it is what it is um but regardless of that I feel like even if um WNBA players had that capital that the NBA players have I think they still do it um, I think they're still doing what they're doing and uh big ups to them all for that honestly because they really have been leading by example um go Pete that Maya more um piece I uh, talked about a few a few weeks ago <laughs> Um, so this is a, a uh, this is an opinion piece by uh, Michael P. Jeffries, who's a professor of American Studies and also an author, and uh, it's in the NY Times, New York Times, and it's called "Athletes Are Finished Playing America's Rigged Game." Uh, and I, I just found this a real fascinating read. And there was plenty I could have gotten. Uh, there's also one by John Amici, a former NBA player and I think a psychologist. Uh, don't correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he did a great p- opinion piece uh, via The Guardian, go peep that if you want, and uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of pieces about this, plenty of great stuff, but this was one I just thought would just just really, just really um, broaden the whole thing and just uh, lay it out for you, uh, so let's get started. In June, as the National Basketball Association prepared to restart its season amid the twin crises of the pandemic and nationwide protests against racial injustice, uh, the general manager of one team told sports writer Sam Amick, quote, you know, and I know why we are playing for the money, unquote. Players knew this too, but trudged forward. Some, like Kyrie Irving, the Brooklyn Nets, questioned their role in distracting the country from protests, but the players ultimately decided to play in no small part because the league agreed to let them use the game, uh, the games as a platform. Their jerseys were emblazoned with messages of social justice, Black Lives Matter, Kyrie Breeze, say their names, and enough... Uh, LeBron James and Los Angeles Lakers spearheaded a voting rights uh, a voting rights initiative with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. In interviewers, uh, in interviews, James and other players uh, at times made statements about racism in response to questions about basketball. But it soon became clear that neither of those actions nor the money was enough. On Wednesday, the Milwaukee Bucks set off a fast-moving wave of protest in, in professional sports when they refused to play their scheduled playoff game against the Orlando Magic. They did so in de- uh, to demand justice for Jacob Blake. Did I say Jason? I hope I said Jacob. Sorry if I did say Jacob. Uh, Jason. Uh, Jacob Blake, the 29-year-old black man who was uh, shot in the back several times by a police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on Sunday. The rest of the league quickly joined the strike by Thursday, uh, less than 24 hours after the Bucks' action. Discussions among NBA players, coaches and owners had reportedly uh, reportedly led to an informal agreement to resume play, but not before a ripple effect, including postponements of the games in WNBA, Major League Baseball, National Hockey League, uh, and Major League Soccer had swept across professional sports. By Friday, the strike had produced results. The NBA and its players' union made its return to play official, 
the playoffs would resume on Saturday with an agreement from the league to create, quote, a social justice coalition to, uh, to be, quote, focused on a broad range of issues, including increasing access to voting, promoting civic engagement and advocating for meaningful police and criminal justice reform, unquote. Part of that initiative will include converting some NBA arenas into polling stations in the upcoming election. At the height of his career as an NBA superstar, Michael Jordan once infamously defended his choice not to engage in politics, joking with teammates that, quote, Republicans buy shoes too, uh, unquote. James and his contemporaries are another place altogether, withholding labour and taking reputational and financial risks that may have a lasting impact on professional, on professional sports and their role in society. Jordan, too, has evolved into a new role as the owner of Charlotte Hornets, and the NBA Labor Relations Committee chairman, he helped broker Thursday's agreement to return to play. To many, the walkout has its, uh, and its impacts amounts to a watershed moment, and in some ways, it is. But it is one that was made possible by black athletes of past decades taking risks and making sacrifices for social justice. Most Americans are familiar with Colin Kaepernick, who began his protest on racial injustice on August 26th, 2016, exactly four years before the Bucks strike. He lost his job and won a settlement from the NFL, joining athletes like Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali, who became global icons after taking a stand. Kaepernick's use of the national anthem evoked Tommy Smith and John Carlos holding up their fists in a Black Power salute at the 1968 Olympics, but few sports fans of this generation know their names. Wow, is that case? That's fucking depressing. You guys all always know their names. Um, the, MB- the NBA has its own legacy. In 1959, uh, 1959 uh, Elgin Baylor of the Lakers chose not to play in his team's game against the Cincinnati Royals after he, after he and other black teammates were denied lodging at multiple hotels. Two years later, black players on the Boston Celtics were refused service at their team's hotel coffee shop. Led by Bill Russell, they and, other, and the black players on the opposing team, the St. Louis Hawks, uh, chose to see out of the game. In 1995, the Denver Nuggets guard Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf uh, decided he would not stand for the national anthem because doing so violated his religious beliefs. After a one-game suspension, Abdul Rauf uh, adjusted, bowing his head to, quote, pray for those who are oppressed, unquote, and as the music played. He faced death threats, was, viewed, was viewed as a pariah across the league, and found himself without work just three seasons later. Black women's contributions to this history cannot be ignored. In July 2016, WNBA players on three teams took, the, uh, took to the court with hashtag Black Lives Matter printed on their warm-up shirts. They were, fi- uh, they were fined for wearing attire that was not approved by the league. Days, uh, days later, the Indiana Fever defiantly wore the shirts again on television and the fines were rescinded. In September that same year, the Fever became the first entire professional team to kneel during the national anthem as they demonstrated their solidarity with Kaepernick. One of the WNBA's best players, Maya Moore, the Minnesota Lynx, there you go, aforementioned, has spent the past two seasons fighting for racial justice away from basketball. Her activism contributed to the 2020 release of Jonathan Irons, wrongly imprisoned in Missouri for over 20 years. And obviously I talked about that on what's good a few episodes ago. If you want to get into that, go get into that. Um, those who chose to play have continued their activism, calling for the removal of one of league's co-owners, Senator Ke- uh, Kelly Loeffler of Georgia, who tried to suppress their voices. Don't be doing that. Uh, in 2014, the Los Angeles Clippers and Golden State Warriors nearly refused to play a play, uh, playoff game in order to protest the Clippers owner Donald Sterling, a notorious racist. But there was little time to plan, build, trust or consider the ramifications and that action was called off. 
In 2020, players said months to thoughtfully consider whether they uh, could play without trivialising their message. This is not the same league that shut down in March. The players now have proof that they are more powerful together than any one-man brand. Many marched with, the na- with their neighbours over the summer. They tearfully and publicly grieved the loss of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, and among o- and others. They saw that const- uh, they saw that constitutional rights doesn't exist uh, doesn't d- don't exist unless we practice them. That economic uh, disruption gets results. They saw protesters of all backgrounds undaunted by their tear- by tear gas and white supremacist militias. They saw again the black life, dignity, and sanity hang in the banners, and democracy hangs with them. Some will argue that protests in sports is nothing new, and neither is racism, so nothing will change. On this we agree, the walkout will not end racism, but it will be wrong to underestimate this moment. Those who downplay the walkout have uh, have an interest in doing so and speak from a place of fear and denial. They fear that it will uh, ripple beyond the professional sports leagues where it has already taken in hold into more leagues, cities and pawn industries that stand to profit the si- from the silence of black athletes. They deny the truth about the state of the country, uh, the grievous harm uh, caused by racial oppression and the inv- inevitability of continued unrest to, in response to it. It is still early. The NBA player's message may not have reached everyone yet, nor has the economic impact been assessed. But it's clear that while these athletes may be ready to return to basketball, they are finished playing America's rigged game, and they have delivered a message that the entire country needs to hear. When it comes to social justice, it's better to think and act like a team. And off the back of this, um, I kind of wonder, um, and also... Let's let's just throw let's throw in this right. So um, obviously the in a week where I just I just did um, talking about the uh, black chief constable saying there could be a George Floyd type killing in the UK. Okay, so let's take that. All right, let's take that and apply it to British sports because I want to put a British spin on this just for kicks, right? Because obviously it's, it's well established that American sports is reaching a point where they can do this. And I'm wondering when will the UK sports, football in particular, because obviously that's the the dominant sport here in the UK, when will something like Premier League football do something of this nature? And I don't have the demographics of uh, of Premier League players um, but I know there are, you know, a significant amount of black players, foreign players, you know, and obviously that <laughs> depends where you where you come from in terms of if you're foreign. Uh, I don't think Polish uh, footballers mind, you know, <laughs> they, they, they don't care. Look it up, do the news um, of what, where Poland, Poland's at politically right now. Tr- interesting, very, very interesting. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a few black players, right? There's a few black players to note. Um, I just wonder... When will there be a moment if if there's a George Floyd style killing in the UK, or we can we we don't have to say George Floyd style, a Stephen Lawrence style killing, a Mark Duggan style killing. What if those happen? What if one of those uh, kind of deaths happen again? Because there will come a time. 
And, you know, I firmly believe that that time has already come. The kneeling is not enough. If it's if everyone's kneeling, it makes it ubiquitous. And therefore, does not make it radical. The fact that Colin Kaepernick did it, and obviously other players, Eric Reid, etc., did it, made it radical. Everyone else doing it now takes the teeth out of it. And I think we can all clock that. So I'm wondering if a death of a of, of, of a Stephen Lawrence level, of Mark Duggan level, of George Floyd level, if that happens in the UK, I wonder how sports will respond in the UK anyway, especially a place like the Premier League. I wonder. And all I can do right now is wonder. But for now, I'll leave it there. And I just want to leave that to uh, to be thought upon more. What will, what should happen and what will happen if something like that, of that magnitude, comes to our attention. So we hop on to our last topic of the episode, and we are talking about Notting Hill Carnival. Uh, it's obviously that time of year, and uh, obviously with Corona and everything else, uh, it's gone digital, it's gone online, and uh, I found a great piece on it. And obviously this is the music segment, but uh, <laughs> obviously so Notting Hill Carnival is a bit more than just music. See, that's a big part of it, but uh, you know it's just the whole culture and the whole whole moment of it. It's just. It's everything, so it's, it's arts, it's culture, it's you know, celebrations, great, love Nine, love Nine Hill. Um, but yeah, I found a great article about it, and uh, as is going on pretty much right now, uh, it's called uh, Notting Hill Carnival Online is More Relevant Than Ever, says director, this is by Landra Bakare, uh, art, arts and culture correspondent for The Guardian, let's get into it. Uh, this year's Notting Hill Carnival has greater significance because of the Black Lives Matter movement and the debate over British colonial history, according to its organiser, who said it provided an opportunity for the UK to embrace unity. Matthew Phillip, the carnival's executive director, said that despite the event being held online uh, because of the COVID-19 outbreak, it was still a vital celebration of black British life, especially during a year when, the racial, te- when racial tensions have come to the fore. Quote, for more than 50 years, Carnival has been a statement that Black Lives Matter, he said. That's normal practice for us. It's not something that we're just jumping on now because of the current global climate, uh, because of the global climate and what's going on. Carnival has been making these statements for 50 years, unquote. He said Carnival's original purpose to celebrate Caribbean culture and unite disparate uh, unite disparate uh, communities, yeah, disparate communities in London was more important uh, than ever after Black Lives Matter protests and counter-protests to exposed uh, exposed racial divisions in the UK. Quote, Yes, we say Black Lives Matter, but it's about promoting unity and inclusion. That's why I was set up in the first place, to bring different communities together from different backgrounds as well as celebrating our heritage, which dates back to slavery, unquote. 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 What's unquote, Charlie? Uh, Philip said the virtual festival had been uh, far harder to organise than the normal event, which is the largest street party in Europe and usually attracts more than a million people to West London over the carnival weekend. The organisers have had to pre-record live sets from musicians, conduct interviews with mass, uh, mass groups and sound system operators, 
and create guides for people to recreate Caribbean food in their own homes as they transform the street festival into a three-day online event. British uh, soul singer Omar Lafouk uh, was one of the group of artists including who recorded uh, who recorded short sets at Abbey Road Studios that will be broadcast over the weekend. Lafouk uh, said that the uh, said the set was recorded three weeks ago in socially distanced conditions and echoed Phillips' comments that Carnival had a special role in 2020. Quote, in a year when people have been protesting against the treatment of black people, I think is a good way. I think this is a good way of showing that we have something to contribute, uh, something that is positive, he said. Other performers taking part over the course of the weekend include Jamaican reggae singer Coffee, um, who did a brilliant feature on Protégé's new album. Please go listen to that one feature. It's fire. She floats. Her float is absolutely crazy. It's her best feature yet. So if you're about coffee, go listen to that song. I just wanted to throw that out there. And the Nigerian Afrobeat stars Davido and Tiwa Savage, who all pre-recorded performances that are available to stream online. Uh, there is also an online version of the parade, which is a highlight of the event and features thousands of participants, plus DJ sets from sound systems that usually... Uh, set up in regular spots dotted around the streets of Notting Hill. Lifouk, who has attended uh, Carnival since he was a child and has performed on several occasions, said the online version was uh, was acceptable as a one-off, but that nothing could compete with the Royal Life Street event. Quote, This whole COVID-19 thing has shown how important it is for people to socialise, he said. You know that feeling of being around each other, people is very, uh, very, really vital, so the sooner they get it sorted out, the better. Unquote. Police and organisers have encouraged people to stay away from the usual usual route of the carnival, which announced in May that it would not take place on the streets of West London for the first time in its 54-year history. Phillips said the event will play a vital role in celebrating, uh, in celebrating but also uh, marking the difficulties of 2020. Obviously, quote, obviously the, it's been a difficult time for everybody, but people need to feel part of something. We will always want to celebrate it. Uh, you know, and that's not taking away from the hard times and the loss that people have felt recently, he said. Carnival has such deep and meaningful significance. It is about marking and remembering why Carnival is here and why we're not out to uh, not out on the streets uh, and we're not having that normal celebration. We are marking it and celebrating Carnival by an irresponsible way, unquote. So, um... I don't know if you guys have, uh, you know, participated in any of the uh, streaming, uh, stream watching of the uh, carnival stuff. I did watch the uh, coffee uh, uh, performance; that was very nice. And uh, yeah, man, it's it's it's, it's a. I, I remember talking about this around the same time this year about Nine Hill and the importance of it uh, on, on this show before, and uh, I just wanted to highlight it again because it obviously is a very important, uh, in my mind, a very important event uh, that happens every year. And, uh, you know, I kind of just wanted to highlight it as that and not something that is just, um, you know, just, just, just that thing that people go to every year. Cause you know, like I said, large, like I said, largest street pie in Europe. I think about that largest street pie in Europe in those tight streets of West London. Crazy to think about. Right. Um, and just, just the color and the smells of that place is crazy. Um, so, yeah, man, I just wanted to, hi- <laughs> excuse me, I just wanted to highlight that, my throat just went, just, just, just seized up for, for half a second there, um, and yeah, and I also kind of just wanted to leave this on a kind of a, um, on a, on a, on a, I guess a, 
a more hopeful note. You know, the fact that they still got it done. You know, they still tried to make it a show. Um, they still tried to, uh, you know, just make something happen at least. Uh, but like everybody else, I hope that by next year we can be going back to shows and we can, you know, and 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 the, and the people can be uh, planning months ahead for carnival and wearing those freaky deaky outfits, bruh. <laughs> you know I'm talking about. You knew what I'm talking about, and, and uh, get that good food, all that good food. Uh, but anyway, we shall hope. Uh, we shall look forward to next year, hopefully, and I'll leave it at that. Of that potential, uh, that potential uh, uh, re, uh, what's the word? Um, that potential return to normal life. We hope. We fucking hope. And on that note, <laughs> follow the Fifth Home Podcast Network. I'm Richard Taylor, and it's been what's good. Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. Interlude music has been Vista by Baldor. You can find both of them tunes via their websites. In the link in the full show notes. Shout out to Job Records with a bit of Yuzi songs. You can also find their entire Job discography in the Bandcamp link in the full show notes. Please support them the way you support me. But don't get it twisted. Support me more because, you know, I do it all. And I uh, hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time. Take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.